If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What was it like to be a child on the World War I home front? Just how effective was Britain in producing materials for the war effort? And how did the system of conscription work to recruit young men for the trenches? Sir Hugh Strawn is the editor of a new volume, The British Home Front and the First World War. And he spoke to Lauren Good about the lives of Britons who were back home while fighting raged on the front lines. Hi Hugh, thank you for speaking to me on the podcast today. We're talking about a book you've edited, The British Home Front and the First World War. Why is it so important that we assess the home front in World War I as well as the front line? The First World War is defined after the event as a total war, meaning that the whole of society is involved, industry is fully mobilised, and therefore there is not a part of the country that is left unaffected by it. And, you know, when we think of our standard British view of the Napoleonic Wars, we think of a society which, although it prepared itself for being invaded, never actually was invaded. And, you know, regularly commentators refer to Jane Austen not uh, reflecting the fact that there's a major war going on while she's writing her novels. That could not be possible, really, in the case of Britain between 1914 and 1918. It also, of course, is affecting a society which is both fully industrialised 
and the premier trading power in the world. So its whole economy is dependent on a war that has a global impact and means that Britain is affected in ways which are not purely military or naval, but go much wider. And I recently spoke to Dan Todman on the podcast about the home front in World War II. How different did the home front look around 20 years earlier? Well, I think the attacks, you know, one one of the obvious points about the Second World War is we think of the Blitz, we think of direct attacks on civilians, we think of destructions, destruction to cities. That happened in the First World War too, but not on the same scale. Bombing from the air, initially by airship and then by, by manned aircraft, occurred. We don't know fully how many people, but probably about 1,500 civilians were killed as a result of enemy, enemy action directly within the United Kingdom between 1914 and 1918. So I think what's important about the relationship between the two world wars is that the experience of the First World War was something from which Britain had learnt and it used those lessons and applied them in 1939 to 1945. And and that applies at multiple levels. It's not just in terms of specifics like defence against air attack. Um, It's also in the way in which Britain mobilised its industry, conscripted its manpower and its, its women to both those are other aspects in which there's a direct lesson learning process going on in the 1930s, which builds on and in many cases implemented by those who had experience of the First World War. And the book is split into five sections, the first of which is titled Government. What sort of political situation was Britain in at this time? Well, Britain was ruled by a Liberal government in 1914, the last Liberal government that Britain has had. And it's a government which is both, in inverted commas, new and, in inverted commas, old. New in that it was embodying what was known at the time as new liberalism, a commitment to some element of social care and social welfare, particularly led by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Lloyd George, but also, of course, had within it Gladstonian liberals who stood for the workings of a free market, who in some respects would find intervention in that market unacceptable and who believed that free trade was the basis of national prosperity, as indeed it had been when Britain had been the first industrial power of the world. Basically, British goods had dominated world markets because they were cheaper and more available than anybody else's. That didn't apply any longer in 1914. So it's a government split at its heart between those who were looking towards a more interventionist state and those who resisted an interventionist state. It's also a government affected deeply by the impact of Irish nationalism and the home rule movement. Gladstone had divided the party over the issue of Irish home rule. And by 1914, Ireland is once again a major issue on the political agenda The Liberals, broadly speaking, are committed to Irish Home Rule and the Unionists have sided with the Conservative Party. So what the Liberals find is happening, they fought three elections since they were first returned to power in 1905 and they have found their majority slipping and there is effectively a pact between them and the Labour Party, still relatively new within Parliament, but a Lib Lab pact which is on which they are dependent to ensure a majority within Parliament. The war is important because 
in the end, although it didn't seem likely to be the case right up until two days before Britain committed itself to entering the war, the war is important because it does bring the country together. The country is broadly speaking united. The Liberal Party does not split when many thought it would over the issue of the entry to the war, although two cabinet ministers resign. And crucially, the Conservatives tell the Liberal Party that they will support the Liberals in Parliament if the government enters the war. And the government were not the only leading body. Heather Jones says in her book that the British royal family was an important cultural force in mobilising the public to take part in the war effort. Could you please elaborate a bit more on this? When the war breaks out, George V, I think it's in October, produces a declaration essentially to the empire, which has two versions. I mean, it celebrates the fact that the empire has come together. It celebrates the fact that the dominions whose foreign policies are still under the control of London, although they can decide what they do within that remit. Australia, New Zealand, Canada and South Africa all have to make their own decisions as to how they will respond to this war. He writes to them and celebrates the empire and the empire as a democratic body and institution to represent the idea that this is a war of democratic states against uh, a militarist Prussia. And yet within that, the king has to have two versions because he writes a different one for India. It does, I think, also reflect the fact that the king is a powerful symbol to those further away parts of the empire. And I suppose especially in India itself, the king gives the empire a personal embodiment. That would really be the point. Is the king personally important within British society? Yes, I think he is. I mean, he visits the front, he presents medals, he visits the wounded, he uh, and his wife, uh, the queen, appear in factories. And there is an engagement more directly with what is still, after all, a very large working class in Britain. And there is, for the first time, really, an engagement though with those who are making the common people, if you like, who are making a genuine effort uh, to support Britain in the war. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. And what other tools were used to try and create a sense of overall belonging to the nation on the home front? Well, there is, if you like, both positive and negative instruments at play here. And it's probably important to begin with the negative instruments rather than the positive because they take precedence chronologically. Very soon after the outbreak of the war, the Defence of the Realm Act is passed. And this is a piece of legislation designed to prevent espionage and sabotage and designed to give the government powers to act where it thinks there may be the possibility of either. By the end of the war, it has multiple regulations associated with it, which have resulted in all sorts of controls on individual life and the way in which it's conducted. And some of those will be controls that never go away, or certainly not in the short term. So daylight saving is one of them. This is in order to minimise the use of electricity and other forms of energy, uh, a perfectly sensible proposition during the war, uh, but we continue to change the clocks at summertime. Uh, that is a wartime consequence of the Defence of the Realm Act. Licensing hours for pubs, the belief that it's necessary to control the working man's appetite for alcohol, results in licensing hours to make sure that productivity remains high. But those were the sorts of indications of the need of the state to use regulation to ensure that people conformed. And many of those became quite repressive for some people. Against that, of course, there is also the positive inducements. Britain did not enter this war with a great propaganda organisation designed to mobilise the people for war. If, you, if we talk about war enthusiasm in 1914, we may be talking about something really quite complicated. A lot of people face this war, understandably, with a sense of dread, a real sense of shock and surprise. And it's nonsense to say that people approach this with enthusiasm. Most people approached it with dread. They knew their lives were going to be upturned. But also they thought in many cases that this was a necessary and a just war and one which had been triggered as far as Britain was concerned by the invasion of a small neighbouring country, Belgium, in defiance of, of treaty obligations. And so it was something that people could accept they should respond to and that they were under an obligation to do their duty, to do the vocabulary at the time. Initially, the effort to control opinion was simply like the Defence of the Realm Act, and a negative one. The effort was to make sure that information wasn't spread 
in ways which could help the enemy, wasn't spread in ways which could undermine morale at home. A British warship sunk in the Irish Sea, HMS Audacious. Uh, the news of that was kept quiet, although it was seen by many as the ship went down, she was photographed. Winston Churchill, the First Lord of the Admiralty, made sure that that news came out when there was good news to put against it rather than simply on its own right. So there is an element of control. And it's not until the body called the Parliamentary Recruiting Committee gets together that we begin to get positive use of opinion forming, the effort to sway public opinion and to make sure that public opinion remains solidly behind the war. And that is primarily because Britain has a voluntary army. The decision is reached that it needs to be a mass army the British army is tiny in relation to the demands likely to be made by European war. So the first manifestation of this is, is the famous posters. Kitchener is, is, is the one that remains in most people's minds uh, demanding uh, your support for the army, that those are a way of eliciting a sense of patriotism and commitment. And as the war goes on, that becomes increasingly important. And you've talked a lot there about this idea of control. Just how aware do you think people on the home front were of the extent of this? They were very aware of it because it came in the form of regulations. I mean, and they were frequently being updated and revised. I don't think you necessarily get a great sense of opposition to it. I think one of the extraordinary things, and I think one of, is the degree of consent in this control, that the public feels that they have an obligation because it's wartime. I think one of the great benefits of being led into this war by a liberal government in what is, after all, a constitutional monarchy, admittedly not a fully democratic state, remember that most men and all women still don't have the vote in Britain in 1914. But there is a sense that it is a democracy, even if it isn't a full democracy in the sense in which we would understand it today. And so that in itself means that although the, there is legislation designed to control the population, it is seen as a wartime necessity. This is something we have to put up with for the duration. It's not that a totalitarian government is, to, is changing completely the face of Britain and the way in which it's organised. Now we can say actually in some respects it has changed Britain completely or fundamentally. There are things that happen in the First World War uh, which will remain permanent. So, for example, by the end of the war, the vast majority of those in work are paying income tax, which was not true at the war's beginning. A massive change in the relationship between the individual and the state, and one, of course, which we all live with today, but, a, but really a phenomenon driven by the war. But people accept that they're going to have to make a financial contribution to this war, within reason, lots of strikes, of course, as people worry about their wages, but people accept sufficiently in order to ensure consent. Broadly speaking, what is striking to many observers is how much people do accept the situation and how little dissent there is. And within this idea of accepting the situation, there was very much an idea of doing your bit on the home front. And this could be at working or also within the setting of the home. 
And a section I found particularly interesting in the book was Maggie Andrews' explanation that families and homes were not just that in World War I. They were culturally invested with so much more and created ideals to be protected and ultimately provided something to fight for and to return home to. How else did this idea of home and family become a driving force in the First World War? What the war does is is change the dynamics of family in dramatic ways. If you think of a, a nuclear family, as we might describe it today, but mum and dad and two or three children, this war is probably going to take dad out of the equation and leave mum as the head of the household. There's a possibility that mum will be working. I mean, we can exaggerate the level to which the mobilisation of women happens in this war. A lot of women are working already before 1914. The more dramatic change, rather than an overall increase in the number of women working, is the move from the sorts of work that women do. So domestic service declines. Those working in textile industries move to industries that are promoted by this war, particularly munitions production, which, of course, becomes a famous centre for female employment. So most people manage to reshape their lives around the war. That in turn means that the children are probably not being as closely supervised as they might be. But at the same time, of course, what the children are experiencing is the absence of parents, the understanding that the war is the reason that parents aren't there, and the realisation that they need and want to understand a bit of what this war is about. And that is reflected in things like the games that children play, the books they read, the whole structure of the children's day could be affected, particularly, of course, if they're living in urban areas and there's a possibility of air attack by the end of the war. So there's a whole raft of ways in which family life is being restructured. Does it prepare those families for the return of soldiers from the war? Well, the evidence would, I think, largely be that it doesn't, and and that's not the fault I think of the state particularly or of the family particularly, but just that those who go to the war and leave their families behind create, I think, in their own minds an idealised version of what home is like. And it's a, it's a home as it was in 1914, not a home as it has become by 1918. And you find regularly in post-war memoirs soldiers finding it hard to settle down back at home. And that could be simply that the intensity of the wartime experience was so great that they found it difficult. It could be, of course, that they were suffering from what today we would call post-traumatic stress disorder. But it could also be that the whole structure of the family had changed. The family had got on with their lives while dad was away. And then they come back to this idealised version of Britain and found it's not so ideal after all, especially given the immediate economic aftermath of the war. So there is tension there on on their return. And you mentioned children a bit there. Could you please elaborate on the sort of experiences they would have had in the home front? It depends a lot on class, this, I think, and also where in in, uh, the United Kingdom you lived. Most men would have a uniform somewhere. And so children would see that. So there is a direct contact with the war to that extent. And what I think you will, would naturally find is that, you know, boys were playing soldiers because they wanted to be like their fathers and they imagined that's what they would be doing. No doubt 
Some girls also wanted to join in on that in terms of how it was interpreted. There are, of course, a lot of what we would now call paramilitary, though that's perhaps a, a slightly loaded adjective, paramilitary organisations like the Boy Scouts, the Boys Brigade, the Girl Guides and so on, which provide a form of discipline and drill and which can include activities which help the war effort. So scouts being put out to guard installations in case spies come coming. I think we have a photograph in the book of girl guides practicing stretcher drills and so on. So there are ways in which they can feel they're making their contribution to the war. And it's reflected in much that children write if they're doing an essay, they're, they're trying to use their imaginations, then, of course, the war is around them, and that is reflected in what they're doing. And I suspect, of course, I, I don't know that we really have enough evidence to be definitive about this, but children, of course, are extraordinarily adaptable. It doesn't take long for a new normality to assert itself. It's the adults who are conscious of the pre-war world as the war goes on. Even the adults find it hard to imagine a world without war because it's been so continuous and plenty of soldiers in the front sort of reconcile themselves to this war with the sense that they're never going to come home again. But that sense of continuity is particularly important for a child. I mean, if you're a child of, say, five or six when the war breaks out and you're approaching teenagerdom, not quite there if you're five or six by the time the war ends then actually it's a conditioning factor of your life. And what you're expecting probably is the time will come when, if you're a boy, you're going to have to join the army. And if you're a girl, that you're too going to have to make some contribution to the war effort. And in some ways, of course, what they confront is the dashing of expectations because the war ends. George Orwell talks about this and explains it as one reason when he writes homage to Catalonia, his account of the Spanish Civil War, why he thought he'd sort of in some ways missed out that he'd been at school and had been prepared for this challenge which never came. And let's move a little bit closer to the front line. Was conscription used in World War I? Yes, absolutely. Initially, when Britain enters this war, there is, has been a debate about conscription, which is widespread across most European countries. And it's been rejected as, as un-British, as an intrusion on the rights of the individual, and as unnecessary because the Navy can prevent Britain from being invaded. And so when the decision is taken that Britain should raise a mass army, a decision taken very quickly on the war's outbreak, that is entirely initially driven by voluntary enlistment. And Britain raises almost 2 million men, over 2 million men, by voluntary enlistment by the end of 1915. But voluntary enlistment is a, both an inefficient way of raising men and also an unequal form. And it's perhaps that second point which is important because by the end of 1915, there are families who, of course, have had family members killed in the war or seriously wounded or captured. And they look across the street and there is another family, none of whose sons have gone to this war. So the demand is for equality of sacrifice. If we've had to put up with this in the name of the nation and our sons or husbands or fathers have done it voluntarily, then, sh then the burden should be equalised. So conscription is, when it's introduced, it gets massive endorsement in Parliament and is broadly speaking popular in 1916 for precisely those reasons. The other point here 
is the inefficiency of voluntary service, of voluntary enlistment, because those who join up willingly may actually have skills which are of far more importance to the nation than being infantry soldiers on the Western Front with the risk, of course, that they might be killed within days of arriving at that front. So if you have language skills, if you're a scientist, if you have a particular expertise that is war-related, that expertise should be used to its maximum effect. And it's not just the things that are war-related. It is also, going back to the point about Britain being a crucially important producer in this war, it's also about people being in vital industries. And that's where it all begins. Uh, so much skilled labour joins up in 1914, I mean, of the order of 20% skilled labour in, in the big heavy industries, that that is actually hitting production at the point where the country needs to build ships, to build guns, to produce munitions. And it's more important that those people stay at their workplaces in factories and in shipyards than they serve at the front. So by uh, when the Ministry of National Service is set up, by the end of the war, what it is doing is ranking where manpower should be for maximum military effect. And the army ranks third in that after the needs of things like building ships, which the shipbuilding program is vital with unrestricted submarine warfare going on in the Atlantic and with the need to bring a mass American army across the, the seas to France in order for this war to be won, as well as the need to maintain imports to Britain and to Europe to enable the war to go on. Shipbuilding has to assume a greater priority than the army does. So what national service enables you to do is not just keep the army up to strength, which is what it does do, although that strength diminishes from 1917 through to 1918, but it's also a way of having a rational division of labour, the best to support the war effort. This is another way in which Britain learns from its experience of the First World War in the Second World War. That rational division happens at the very beginning when conscription is introduced, in this case, before the war actually breaks out at the beginning of 1939. It's introduced in January when, of course, the war breaks out in September. And within this context of dividing labour on the home front, just how effective was Britain in production? Well, very effective. The By 1918... One of the principal reasons that the Allies are winning this war is that they are outproducing their opponents. And so you are able to sustain a war effort on multiple fronts, particularly on the Western Front. You're able to attack at several points sequentially and even simultaneously, just because you now have enough guns and ammunition to do that, which you absolutely did not have in 1914, 1915 and 1916. And what it's also enabling Britain to do is to help other countries to fight. Most of the borrowing that Britain does in the United States before 1914 and 1917, it's borrowing in order to, to support war production and war industries. But most of that borrowing is to fund Russian purchasing to arm the Russian army so there's an active Eastern Front between 1914 and 1917. And there's a big debate in the government in 1915-16 as to whether Britain can both have a mass army, a mass army ultimately to be sustained by national service, by conscription, by compulsory military service, and at the same time be the industrial and economic support for its allies. 
Reginald McKenna, who becomes the Chancellor of the Exchequer in the coalition uh, formation, when the, uh, the Liberals form a coalition government in May 1915, is strongly the view that Britain should focus on its strengths as an economic power and not try and raise a mass army. But David Lloyd George, his predecessor as Chancellor of the Exchequer, who by then is Minister of Munitions or will be Secretary of State for War before he becomes Prime Minister in December 1916, feels that Britain has to do both. It has to have a mass army ultimately raised by conscription and it has to be a, a major economic player, industrial player in this war. It will leave Britain with a massive debt, particularly in the United States, and it will produce an enormous strain on Britain to be able to do that. But as the Duke of Wellington said in 1838 when confronted with war in Canada, he said there is no such thing as a small war for a great nation. And the problem for Britain is that it is a great nation in 1914, and this is a great war, and the demands are immense, which is precisely why the whole of society is involved in the war. And finally, Hugh, considering everything we've talked about, what lasting impacts did the First World War home front have on Britain as a whole? I would say the biggest change wrought by this war is the realisation that a 20th century economy has to be a mixed economy. The state has to intervene in some aspects of the way in which the economy is run. Before 1914, the Liberal government had stayed out of relations between employers and the trades unions. It had accepted the principle of free trade, and that had become axiomatic for the Liberal government. After 1918, it is, has first of all accepted that it will have to intervene if in the end production is being lost because strikes are so great and if employers and employees can't find a way forward. And it has recognised that it has to be ready to interfere in the workings of the economy if you are actually going to get it in the right direction that the state actually needs rather than simply pursue market-driven forces. And those lessons might have gone away, but then the slump of 1928 brings them back home again. And then there is another war a decade after that. So this lesson is reinforced rather than undermined in the passage of time thereafter. So I think that that's the fundamental shift that takes place. The other thing I think that is very important in this war is that this is a society which, after all, has basic primary education. Not true of, of Britain, say, in the Napoleonic Wars. Most people are literate. And therefore, the printed word has a power and an influence, which means that people are aware of what is happening outside their own communities. And the demand for print journalism during this war is massive. People want information. The BBC will follow after the end of this war, headed by uh, John Reith, himself a veteran of the war. But other forms of communication will begin to take their place in the war itself. So cinema becomes very important as a way of influencing opinion. And the use of these new media to create a national debate means, in some respects, the decline of local influences in local regions. Think how much more in 1900 of national wealth, when it comes to its harnessing for state purposes, actually goes through local government 
in 1900, as opposed to central government. By 2000, that balance will have been shifted massively with money going to central government, to a national health service, to education, to all sorts of things, which many would have seen as the responsibility of local government in 1900. So the growth of central government is, if you like, another consequence of the war. It's not to say these things would have happened, wouldn't have happened without the war. Of course they might have happened without the war. But the war is a very powerful accelerator. That was Sir Hugh Strawn, editor of the British Homefront and the First World War. That's out now, published by Cambridge University Press. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.